All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Forging Brains Podcast. I'm your host, Riley Kirkpatrick, with my co-host, Gavin Cooper. Mm-hmm. Today we got a pretty cool guest, and it's pretty cool timing on this one. We got Austin Edens with us. Austin is, at one time, you were the youngest world champion, correct, at Calgary? No, Shane Carter was. I think he was 21. Shane was? Yeah, he was 21, okay. I was 24. So he beat me by three years. By three years. Yeah. <laughs> so it was uh, 2003 when you won Calgary, and then now we got Calgary kind of coming back. We got Spruce Meadows coming up, and Austin is going to be the judge for Spruce Meadows for the first one. So pretty cool deal. Thanks for joining yeah. us, Austin. You bet. It's exciting stuff, and thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And so you kind of grew up shoeing horses with your dad, didn't you? Yeah, my father's a farrier and you know he's world-class farrier he just never has competed that much you know he would go to our local competitions and all that but he's kind of a perfectionist and he trained me when I was young growing up and you know he would make me perfect clinching he would make me perfect different things and and then then he kind of helped me out competing when I started out in division one and and then kind of went on from there yeah how old, how old were you when he started putting you to work? I was probably 14 when I started clinching for him. I wanted to do it younger than that, but I was too small, you know, and getting under horses when you're, you know, a 12-year-old scrawny kid, you know, just, it's not really safe. And, you know, it just, yeah. he wouldn't let me do it. And I was frustrated at that point, but about 14, I was big enough to get under the horses during the summer and really start working. And you were eager that you wanted to go with him at that, that age. Yeah. Yeah, I was in the beginning. Um, it was a good summertime job. I never wanted to shoe horses for a living. Um, you know, you oh. see your dad working really hard and long hours. And he always encouraged me to go to college, which I did do. And, you know, I just in high school, I was you know, like, well, I want to do something else. And But then I went to college and kind of started shooting horses part-time and I really loved it and then I could go out and be outside with horses every day or or I could be stuck behind a desk and I just opted to be outside I'm an outdoors person what What did you study go to college for yeah um I got a business degree I wanted to do art and I got a minor in art actually and really my father discouraged me from getting an art degree he said that's about the most worthless degree you can get <laughs> and looking back he's exactly right but but I always liked blacksmithing and you know making jewelry or, or whatever you know with my hands so that's that's what drew me to it but the business degree helped me more than anything really was he letting you do some blacksmith work before you got under horses yeah I would come home after school and and tinker in the shop I would make candle holders for the teachers at school and people in the community and I had a business making railroad spike knives you know I would twist the handles and do basket weaves and all kinds of different handles on railroad spike knives and I made a I made hundreds of those things in high school and I wish I still had some my dad might have some still but I'd get sheaths made from the local leather guy and you know and I'll get 50 bucks a piece for a polished out you know perfect railroad spike knife and and I just how long was it taking you to make one Oh, 
it's hard to say back then, you know, probably one a day, but I would, you know, make them in batches, you know, and I would do different handles. And of course my family would support me and had relatives from around the country, you know, would order them and then, you know, and just people around. And Christmas time was a big time because people wanted to give it as a novelty gift, you know, to, to their friends and stuff. Yeah. So I made, I made a lot of those. And it was... That's like, cause that was a time, there was no like, no easy way to advertise them at that time. Like it was no. just word of mouth. That you're no, selling. we couldn't have the Riley Kirkpatrick Instagram page or anything. We had, a, you know, <laughs> yeah. but it was, but it was great. You know, just, you know, people would show other people and, you know, I had friends and would show their parents and they would order one and, and things like that, you know, in the community. And it, you know, but it taught oh, me a lot about forging, you know, cool. trying to make a blade on a railroad spike knife and make it not bow and, make it offset, make the handle straight, you know, and, and different twists, you know, and trying to keep that all straight teaches you a lot about forging, yeah. you know. There's there's no real way to hang on to it, you know. And so it, it's got all the elements of forging in it except welding, you know, but yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And did you did you have at that time like any special tongs or anything to hold on to them or are you just using bolt tongs? I just welded a tang onto the little head of the railroad spike. And then that gave me. Oh, and you know, grind it off. Yeah, and then I would grind it off. And then I would polish the head after I, you know, broke the broke the handle off. That worked really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's do such you, a cool thing. Like, what made you think like I'll just do this production style right away? Um, I don't know. I just got excited about orders. You know, just just like anything. You know, just like people wanted it. You know, and. It was good money for me back then, you know. You could go make $3 an hour at McDonald's back then or you could make 50 bucks after school, you know. So it just it was a no-brainer on my part, you know. And so I just just started that and you know and that that forging, you know. Then I started competing and you know and I implemented all the forging I learned, you know, making railroad spike knives and candle holders into my horseshoes later on. Hey guys, Do you like that Christmas morning feel of opening up a box, not knowing what's inside, feeling all sorts of excitement to find out what's inside? Well, let me tell you, you can feel that excitement every other month with a subscription to Farrier Box. Most farriers want to be competitive, whether it's attracting top-notch clients or winning contests. They take the tools and tricks of the trade used by today's top farriers and ship them to you so you have what you need to take your career to the next level. Go to farrierbox.com to start your subscription and use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's box. I repeat, use code BRAINS for 25% off your first order. I know I like receiving packages, but I like it even more when it's a surprise, but also knowing I'm getting cool tools and tricks from Farrier Box. There's nothing out there like it in today's world of farriery. So you might as well go and level up with Farrier Box. Go to www.farrierbox.com and use code BRAINS for 25% off your first month's order. Thanks, guys. Let's get back to the podcast. Do you think Ow. that uh, that art degree that you had gotten kind of helped with someone like your horseshoe making or even the blacksmithing after the fact? of college um not really um my father's right you know it was pretty unless you're really going to get into art stuff you know just 
Mm-hmm. But it did help, you know, seeing things like, you know, the dominant, the subdominant in an art piece and, you know, appreciating painting and, and nature and stuff like that. But as far yeah. as the, it didn't teach you anything about business or life or anything. It just taught you about appreciating something, a piece of art, which is great. But, you know, it didn't, didn't really help me in my business aspect, really. Yeah. No, but if it, that it seems sense. like art, yeah, like art, it seems like most of the people that I talked to like went to school for art, it's more or less they just learned how to like explain it. Yeah. Like when explain the art. About it. Yeah, yeah. Like they just learned how to like break it down. Like you just learned like anatomy of art and how to yeah. like say what you're feeling about it, like what it makes yeah. you feel. You learn the form like, part, but you I don't do really learn the function. Hard. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it's just I a see. natural eye, the art stuff is. You know, you either see it or you don't. You know, you just, like when you're making a hammer, you know what looks beautiful, you know, and it's the same with horseshoes and, you know, things got to have flow and, and, you know, it's just. But sometimes it's hard, like, pinpointing it. You know, yeah. you're like, I, something's fucked up with this. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, like, maybe if I had an art degree, I could be like, okay, this curve doesn't match this curve. And that's, that's why what I was kind of wondering. It's looking really bad. If that but I'm kind of that like way with colors. Like I don't, that. I can't see colors. You know, I don't know what matches on my outfits or anything else oh, like really? that. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> I'm not good with colors at all. Yeah. I didn't know. But, like, your hammers are very artistic like your your machining work is very like man it's got a lot of like cool but it's black and white it's not it. there's no colors <laughs> that's true that's yeah. true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> no but i think you see a little bit of that art come out when you when you're making stuff because you never have you don't like your whole entire tool range there's nothing in it that's just a plain tool yeah like that's just like you know there's like something unique to them yeah, and that's the that's the fun part about making tools to me is making something artistic and new and you know flashy and you know make the curves and you know that that's the fun part. And that's something but, I've always wondered about is like with tools, like how many different ways can we make them? You know, like mm-hmm. other than like just the black and white same style. You know. Yeah, and like like Gary Darlow says, it's only that it's only that bottom bit and that top part you strike. That's the only thing that really matters on a tool. You know, what's in between doesn't really matter that much <laughs> you know and and i think he's right yeah. 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 no as long as everything yeah, lines might, up it might change like durability yeah yeah but it's not gonna it ain't gonna matter how it runs That's it for sure like. nowadays it's like sex appeal is a thing when people buy tools right they're like oh it looks yeah. really cool like i want to buy this yeah and, and hopefully it works swinging well. a hammer yeah so yeah <laughs> and, and i think that's what but riley Riley's hammers are so popular, you know, they're, they're wonderful hammers to use, but he takes really good photos. You know, you, you put them out in nature, or you put them on the hood of an old truck and, you know, you take oblique pictures and you, you take some really good photographs. And I think that really drives demand, you know, on products like that. And well, yeah, too, if you think about it, like Yeti coolers is a cooler. It's mm-hmm. not going to get much, much you know, better <laughs> yeah. or anything. Yeah. But everybody wants one, and a lot of it, it's like marketing. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, that's what drives it. Yeah. And so it, it is interesting to me that you went to college for business and art, and in a way, that's exactly what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny, but 
but I, I think you're right. I don't, yeah. I don't know if it was too worthless. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't want to screw your dad. I really like him. But yeah. like, at the same hand, like you've kind of you've kind of narrowed into like, man, you're running a business and you're making tool art. Every like, you know, like everything in a roundabout right way. Now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got a little mm-hmm. bit of art in it. It's like, it, I don't know if it was that worthless. So did. Do you think going to college is what slowed you down? Let sh- you know that you couldn't beat Shane on the youngest. Um, you no, I think it. I bit? think it helped me some. Um, I was the first year I won the convention. I was I was still in college. Um, so oh. okay, but but I I kind of I planned it where I could have all my classes like Tuesday Thursdays, and then I took night classes, and so I I I made it where I could practice a lot you know, after school, or I could go shoe horses, and I went to Mark Milster's every weekend when I was in college. It was four and a half hours up to Mark Milster's, from, and usually I could leave Thursday night, and I would get there, you know, at midnight, and then I'd help him on Friday. We'd practice all weekend, and usually I'd drive back to college on Monday, um, and I did that for, you know, four years, just almost every Did you weekend. meet Mark, like, through your dad? Um... No, I met Mark. I met Mark at the Oklahoma contest, and he he kind of. I, I met him. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. He denies this to this day. But when I was in I was in high school, and Todd and I, Todd Walker and I, were up there at the Oklahoma contest, and and I had a portfolio of all my stuff, you know, of all my blacksmithing projects and candle holders and you know all my railroad spike knives and stuff. And, Mark says, yeah, before, let me see that. Phones you know, with pictures. Yeah, so he's going through my portfolio, and he's like, oh, man, that's great. You know, and he's giving me a lot of compliments. And I just got done with the live shoeing, and I never shot a horse by myself. You know, it was pretty much my first time. And he went over there, and he picked up my horse's foot, and he looked at it, and he says, you better stick to blacksmithing. You know, <laughs> and dropped my foot and walked off. <laughs> <laughs> pretty rough then, huh? Yeah, I remind him of that all the time, and he denies it. But the next contest, it was after I got back from the exchange, he was judging it, and he invited me to his house after I competed at that contest. And from then on out, I, I went to his house every weekend after that. But, but I needed some help shoeing horses and stuff, you know. And, and he saw that I had a forging ability, and then and we got together doing the two-man at the convention, and then we just started partnering up from then on out. Yeah, it lasted quite a while. That whole partnership. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he, he'll, he'll always ride. deny. He said said that that I should stick to blacksmithing. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the first contest you went to? Yeah, I was in high school and I went to the Texas contest and and I I placed you know fourth, fifth, you know, and in some big forging classes. You know, we used to have a lot of people at the, in the Texas contest, but. Um, yeah. Still is quite a bit of people. Yeah, and then I never really did that good, but then I kind of I, I started doing good after I went on the exchange, and that was when I was a sophomore in college, and I kind of got thrown into. Well, Dad told me he said, "Well, if you're going to learn to shoe horses, you might as well go on the exchange. You know, it's a good opportunity to see Europe and go over there for the summer." And and so I went over there and. And guys like Derek Gardner and Gary Darlow and, you know, Spud Allison, those guys helped me make shoes. And 
and help my acceleration and my learning curve just really shoot straight up. And and then when I got is back, that where you initially met Spud? Was on the exchange. Yeah, yeah I, I stayed yeah. with him for a couple of weeks for sure. And and he how had how long were you there total? Three months. You know, it three was, months. Yeah, I was 19, 20 years old, and yeah, and it was it was just the greatest experience. You know, all you had to worry about is your suitcase. You know, you didn't have to worry about anything else, and you know, you just put your head down and go to work every day. Everyone treated you like a king. You know, you just they took you to all the best restaurants and you know took you out to eat and you know and took you to see all the castles and you know and and then next day you just work until five o'clock and then they would entertain you again you know so it just it was really a great experience you didn't you know you never had to work worry about tacking shoes on or lame horses or anything like that you just you know you just went and had fun you know it was great i Did highly you get recommend to compete it while you're over there yeah every you know i i, I competed in the apprentice classes um they, mm -hmm. they really wouldn't let you shoe horses but so that was great now I would compete against Stephen Bean in the apprentice classes back then, you know, so we. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. I remember I was in a class, and he was sitting there watching me, and then he ran over there and looked at my shoes real quick, you know, and, and we would kind of go back and forth at each contest, and that was a lot of fun, you know. And he was, he was maybe a second- or third-year apprentice. No, he was a third-year apprentice, I think, when I was over there. But. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You guys kind of came up on the rise together then i guess at the same around the same time then huh yeah and then you know we kind of competed together and we went to calgary and competed at convention and stonely and all that yeah so we kind of came up about the same time and then I, then i retired and he just what kept would going, be so. <laughs> what would be some advice for people that are looking into like the foreign exchange that you would give somebody um i would just recommend going and applying for it it could just it's the best thing you can do um and just be humble and and learn from everyone you know and it's just everyone had something to offer to teach and just absorbing all that information and absorbing that information just makes you a better competitor and a better horseshoer you know just even if you don't implement it into your system you've you've tried it and you know you can you know if, if i'm competing and I don't agree with the way someone wants something done, but I did it working for those people, then, you know, it can really benefit you um, sometimes. And just just the exposure to all different shoeing methods, you know, just really makes you a more well-rounded farrier in my mind. Sounds pretty well put. Yeah. I don't know how but yeah. anybody could go wrong by not doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, and you obviously you went through it th through the AFA, correct? I did. Yeah, I went through the AFA, and actually, I was in college at the time, and I missed the first two weeks of the next semester because <laughs> it was the last year of Closeburn Edwards contest, and I wasn't going to miss it. And it, that was '99, and I really wanted to go to that, so it was just I had permission, and it was. It was a terrible semester. I had upper level accounting classes and stuff, and it was just, it was a tough, tough semester, but, but it was worth it. Yeah, I bet when you look back, you probably remember going to that contest more than you remember having to, like, crunch for that, that semester when you got oh, back. Oh, yeah. Huh? Oh, yeah. 
and I was so glad to see those guys, you know, as Mark and Craig and, you know, Jason Smith on the team. And, you know, so it was, just, it was great to see. And my parents came over for the contest too. And so it was good to see everyone, you know, and you're kind of homesick anyway at that point. And then, then all your American yeah. friends and parents come and stuff. So it was, it was great. So Have when you, you came home, was that just like fire under your ass, ready to go keep competing then? Yeah, you know, I was, you know, I had a lot of experience under my belt, and I learned a lot, and so then I just started hitting the contest when I got home, and, and yeah, that was just, but going to a contest almost every weekend really primes you for competing, you know, and that's what those guys have such an advantage. They can just go to contests you know, every weekend in the summer, you know, you go sleep on somebody's living room floor, you know, and, and get up and have a shoe and go. And then next weekend you go, you know, sleep in somebody else's living room floor, you know, it just, that's what they all would do. And it just, it's just hard to compete with when those guys just have go after go after go. And, and it just makes you a more seasoned Yeah. And like the size of England is so much smaller, you know, it's like, not even the size of Texas, right? Whereas yeah. like they have all those contests, like going almost every weekend. It's not like we would have to fly to, and you know, another state in order to make it every weekend type thing. They can just drive two hours, right? Exactly. You know, it's just just so much more convenient. And, and that's and that's where Mark and I started improving. Is we made our own little contest every weekend. You know, we would have goes against each other. You know, and that's that's where you really have to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you don't have a setting where you can go to a contest every weekend, you have to make your own mini little contest against, you know, two guys or one guy or whoever it is. You know, and I would go to Mark's, and he would whip the shit out of me one weekend, you know, and I'd go home and practice, and I'd come back, and I'd beat him, you know. So it, just, it was a back and forth, but we did this, you know. He'd get better, I'd get better, and the mark on the wall kept getting higher and higher. And then when we'd go to the real contest, you know, it was – you know, we do a lot better because we were so used to having the goes. Yeah. When, when you guys went to the actual contest, did it end up just being kind of between you and Mark anyways? <laughs> yeah, it would, you know, but um, Craig, <laughs> Craig was in the mix at that time, you know, so we would, you know, okay. well, we would all yeah, be that. And then, you know, guys like Jim Quick, you know, would come periodically. And so, I mean, there was really good guys, but. You know, we would be in the mix for sure, but it would, you know, it was a lot of fun. One of the years at Calgary, you know, it was Craig and Mark and Jim Quick and myself in the top four, you know, during the whole contest, you know, and it, it was a lot of fun, you know, because we just competed against each other all the time and just constantly raising the bar. Yeah. And just, you know, you just, you can't go to a rodeo and not practice, you know, and you have to go to, you know, you have to rope and rope and rope to, in order to do good, you know, so it's kind of the same concept. But. Right. And, and having time to go is really helps, you know. Taking three-hour goes, you know, is not practical either, you know. Yeah. So how were you, how were you practicing at home in between then? Were you breaking things down into elements more, or were you just still just practicing the whole, whole goes? Um, at first, I practiced the whole goes. Um, I, I really think that helps you with your timing. Just 
knowing how to have five minutes at the end of the class to check your nail holes, flat, pairs, things like that. You know, just knowing where you need to be 20 minutes in, you know, 30 minutes in, 40 minutes in, et cetera. But later on, I started just practicing elements. I started just, you know, making heel cocks and branches and, and glue on shoes and just not really finishing anything. You know, just I was, you know, seasoned enough just to kind of figure out the parts, you know. But in the beginning, it was definitely full goes, timed goes, and just knowing where I needed to be at, on the clock at any time. How long do you How think much? that span between, like, you and Mark practicing together went? Like, as far as, like, you going there every weekend, was that just, like, a couple years type deal? Or that was, was a four fairly years, short Four years, five About years. four years. Yeah, we went, you know, it's, it's all during my college, and after I got back, graduated college, we continued to do that. And, you know, I would, I would help him shoe horses, and then we'd just have the goes. And, and it would, we got where we would just – when it got Calgary time, we would turn our phones off a week out and just stay in the shop and practice. You know, we just we were that serious about it, and just we would lie to all our clients and tell them because you, you guys know, were like we're out. Were you guys together or like at your own shop and shutting your phones I, off, like because you? Didn't I would want go to the other person. I would to go see. to Marks, you know, four or five days ahead of time. And that way we could have the two-man goes and practice, and we'd have head-to-head goes before we'd leave. Yeah. So that really helped us just prepare. And then, you know, there's nothing worse than trying to get all your horses shot the day before you're going to a big contest like that, devoted all that time. <laughs> and then you work until, you know, 9 o'clock, and then, and then you're going off and, and competing, you know, unprepared, your tools aren't ready and all that. So we tried to solve that problem yeah. by just giving us plenty of time to prepare. It's so one thing I always admired about Jake Engler. You know, he would shoe horses on the way to the airport, you know, on the way back, you know, and then he would always excel and just win everything, you know, and he would just – Yeah. He always amazed me like that. But I always had to prepare, you know, make sure everything was exactly right. I was just talking to him this weekend, and he said he's flying home, and he's like, yeah, I got to stop over here and shoe a couple on the way home, and then I'll be on my way <laughs> yeah. home. I was like, geez, yeah. man, it just never ends. Oh, he's a savage. So. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, we work together a lot. So and... how many years had you been going to Calgary before you won it? Um, I was Rookie of the Year in 2000. And then I won it in 03, and I went one more time in 04. That's when I kind of hung it up at that point. So I went five years total. Five years. How how prepared did you feel that year that you went? Um, pretty pretty prepared. You know, the year before I was more prepared, and. And, and I lost it by a little bit. You know, I was, I was reserved. The first year I was, you know, in the top ten, and then, then I was third, then I was second, and then I won it. But it was just, yeah, it was. Who won it the year that you were, that you were reserved? Um, Darren Bazin, I think. I'm pretty sure Darren Bazin won it. But he was always hard to get around. He was, you know, he's, 
it's sad he's not around, you know, international competing much, but he was always a really nice guy, and he was always really fast and clean work, and just he was always hard hard to beat. And then he won it in 04 <laughs> the next year, too. And that was when they gave away the gold cock and wedge, and, you know, and that was pretty Solid cool. gold? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, man, solid I'd gold like to see that. Tool, yeah, solid gold tool and fuller cock and wedge, and it was – Pretty sweet. Who made it? I don't remember who made it, but it was, yeah, somebody up there in Canada. But it was, it was worth like twenty five thousand at the time. You know, a gold. Yeah. It was like a jeweler made it or something, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I don't think it was a horseshoer that made it. No, yeah, it was a jeweler, and then, and then he can't even display it on his coffee table or anything because he's got to put it in a safe deposit box because you know. It's it's gold, yeah. <laughs> it's gold, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, if yeah, we were making the shoe and like we're handling it in a forge, and like, oh fuck, I hope I don't burn it up or something, and then there goes all the yeah. gold. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it was fourteen carat or ten <laughs> you carat. You sticking it, a it gold was, one in the forge master. Yeah, but it was a full size cock and wedge, you know. So <laughs> pretty amazing. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because they also did a a gold J sharp hammer one year, didn't they? Um, I don't recall that. I want to say it was like but, it was like a gold scoop side J sharp hammer. So uh-huh. I remember seeing one. And it was like, yeah, that's, yeah. I saw that's a few it. Damascus ones, but <laughs> I, don't remember, I don't remember seeing a gold one. But but I, I, you know, I could be wrong. But sure. Gosh, that's cool. Man. Yeah, I'd love to have a prize like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's actually worth something. Yeah. Yeah, the sad part is it's, it's worth something melted down. Yeah, sure. exactly. Like, <laughs> not, not so much in the shoe form. Yeah. A, a horseshoe is not going to pay that for it. <laughs> no, no. Not at whatever auction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So what do you think – what do you think having a world champion means for our horseshoeing community? I think it's really a great thing, and I think David Verini said it best. You know, you 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 know, to have mountain efforts, you got to have a base camp, and it really helps everyone at base camp, and just to give everyone something to strive for, and and you know, and I know it pays a lot of money, and that's controversial and all that, but I think it's just so cool to have a world championship again, and you know, it was just. Those are some of my fondest memories going to the contest and competing at it. And even when I didn't compete anymore, just watching it and, you know, seeing who was crowned world champion every year was just really a cool thing. And I think it creates a lot of buzz just in the whole farrier industry as a whole, you know, not, not only, you know, in the competing world, but just in the farrier world as well. And I think it just brings a lot of awareness to our trade and saying there's a world champion blacksmith really helps out i think do it's you, a cool deal do you remember some of the emotions the year that like how you felt the year you won it yeah it was it just you know it's it's weird you're just like proud of yourself on, the, on this on this high and then then you kind of have this postpartum depression after after you do it you know it's like it's it just a weird feeling but i think you just amp yourself up so much to that point you know you're just practicing and going sleepless nights and you're just 
got all this adrenaline flowing and you know I would always be behind the tent puking you know because I was just so nervous before my goes you know and really and yeah oh yeah they made fun of me Jim Quick would put barf bags on my anvil before the goes because he knew I was out there puking you know because I was just <laughs> I was so worked up <laughs> no kidding yeah wow it was an ongoing joke <laughs> did not know that <laughs> yeah, conveniently there'll always be one on the airplane before you know it came to the contest, but <laughs> but, but well, yeah, you, just was it like almost a little bit of like a letdown after you won it? Like, did you think that it was gonna like feel different? No, not at all. It's it's just a total normal part of the process, you know. You like athletes and you know go through that, and it just you know just because you you ring that bell and then you're like, now what? And you think that's what you're striving for, you know, and you think when I hit that, it's just going to be the end all be all and everything's going to be wonderful. But, you know, you're still shooing that horse that's trying to kick your head off and need eat mud and, you know, and you still have the same problems and you still have the same clients doubting you. And, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, it's the same, you know, you still have the same problems, you know, it's just not. When you're anointed world champion blacksmith, it's not like you think winning the Super Bowl and you get hundreds yeah, of millions get to, of dollars and, and get to go time. to Disneyland, you know. But it, but it, but it is a cool thing to be able to say you're a world champion or something. Um, but Absolutely. but being able to give back after you do that, you know, because you're asked to do a lot of clinics and you know and, and teaching and, and all that. That's what it's all about, you know. And uh, you know, I did a yeah, I did you know a bunch of clinics after I won that, and that was. That was the most rewarding part is just meeting all the people and, you know, and, and trying to, you know, teach basics and, you know, and, and, and spread the word of good fairy and, and all that is the most rewarding part. It's so crazy like that, that part you said that you have still the same clients doubting you because you think, yeah. you know, you're like, <laughs> like, like when I'm talking to clients, yeah, I'm like, listen, this is what all the champions do. But like now all of a sudden you're like, I'm the champion. You should listen to me. Like, I'm the Die. but they're still like ah joe down the road they, said that those yeah. heels gotta stay <laughs> yeah <laughs> they, yeah yeah dylan and i were talking about that just before this podcast you know and he was talking about clients doubting him and i said you know this what you did at edgewood is just remarkable that only a few farriers in this world can do just a beautiful job like that you know and and it just you're always going to have people doubting you and it just it's a part of it and you just have to work for those that have confidence in you and in, in your ability and it makes your life but a lot is there easier. that little bit of doubt in in yourself ever there like that you're like you know like it's easy for me to be like well i i know i got a lot of shit to work on because i'm not close to a world champion but all of a sudden you're a world champion you're like i still feel like oh, i got I, some stuff to work on you know what i mean like you still feel oh, like other just, guys might be better than you yeah, and you know, like Mark Milster and myself, and we're always real hard on ourselves, you know, just, and I'm always cussing at myself, just saying I should do better. And, and that's what gives me my drive is just afraid of failure and just like, just tell me, I tell myself that's stupid, you know, and, and try to correct my mistakes and try not to make any mistakes. But that's, you know, self-doubt is what I, I constantly have in everything I do. And you know, it's just, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but it's, if I go into no, something I confident, it, I, if I I'm go into right something confident, I just, I just, everything falls apart and it just, 
I have to be scared going into something, and that's why I would always be so nervous. I was I was afraid of failure, and I wouldn't let myself fail. You know, if you Even just kind of you have prepared yourself so much. Yeah, you know, if you just go into and shrug your shoulders and like, well, if I fail, I fail. You know, you're not going to do any good. But if you're like, I cannot fail. I cannot let that clip slide over the edge of the anvil too far or not enough. That clip's got to be perfect. You know, you're gonna you're gonna make sure that happens. You know, and, and but you have to be you're gonna be intense when that happens. You know, so it's there's a fine line. You know, yeah. it's just. I used to be really intense, you know, it's just, <laughs> is it worth it? I don't know. <laughs> I would say it's pretty worth it. I mean, look where you won a world champion. You were on the AFA team. Like how many times were, how many times were you on the AFA team? Four times, but, but my nickname was yeah. Captain Asshole too, you know, so just like <laughs> you. <laughs> I, feel, I feel your pain, man. <laughs> 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 Captain asshole. Yeah, Gavin Cloud. Yeah. I am not the nicest guy to be on a team yeah. with. Just... Maybe uh, that's what I'll have to title this episode. Yeah. Austin yeah. Eden's yeah. Captain Asshole. <laughs> that's okay. I'm okay with it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Oh, I like and that. And it's so funny because you you truly are like such a like I think you're such a nice guy. You know what I mean? But you just. You're super straightforward, I guess. Like, I guess well, that is true. Todd doesn't think so. Todd and I were on the team together, you know. And Todd's Mr. Laidback, Mr. Cool, you know. And like, and I was yeah. it was intense, and you know, <laughs> when we would be partnered up, you know, one day I showed up to his shop and he had a he had a picture of me with a bunch of knives thrown at it. He was throwing throwing darts <laughs> at my picture. You know? He was mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty far that's pretty far yeah so <laughs> that's taking it to the extreme uh, yeah I, I think he coined the term captain asshole actually so yeah <laughs> that's good uh, yeah so it was it pretty it, it pretty like intense when you guys went over to stonely then like yeah temperatures it, were pretty high at that time no it was pretty good we had fun when we went to stonely and you know it was just we we always had a good time, you know. We had, you know, Todd and John McNerney and Bill Poor. You know, you had Bill Poor to the mix. You know, it's a lot of fun. You know, so. We, oh yeah. 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 Oh man. That's what we hear. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I, I bet some of the Bill Poor stories are insane. <laughs> yeah. We, we can't repeat them on this podcast, but. <laughs> yeah. Say not even not even this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah. so good hmm. <laughs> but you guys have like pretty decent teams going over there with you bill todd and john like had to be feeling like you guys were going to go over there and do pretty good but yeah man, pretty yeah, hard and, and we were so all young at that you point practicing pretty hard yeah we practiced but we, we were kind of young and inexperienced because it was in 01 it was me and uh craig and milster and quick you know, and then then those guys took a back seat, and then then it was just McNerney and Todd and Bill, and you know, so we were all working together for the first time. You know, so we were all kind of green, 
But a couple of years later, we, you know, we built some momentum and, and started doing pretty good. But that first year together was just a struggle because it was just, you know, I was the captain. I didn't know how to manage people. You know, I was the new guy the year before, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm the captain and I'm the experienced one. And it just, that was really a hard learning curve for me. And I didn't know how to manage the team or, you know, coach the guys or anything like that, you know, and it took me a couple of years to kind of figure that part out. And that's a big part of it. What are some tips that you learned along those lines of how to manage a team to get everybody working together? You have to just find everyone's strengths mainly and weaknesses as well, you know, so, and you gotta, you know, put people where they're strongest, you know, Bill would always go first. You know, because Bill didn't have the attention span to go through a whole go, but he gave you 50 minutes of the best go of his life, and then he was going to go sit down. But, you know, he was just – and that was Bill, and we knew it. You know, so, Bill, you're going first. And then, you know, he could be done, and then he's out of everybody's way. And he did a beautiful job and scored nines all the way across, and then, you know, the other three guys could chew the horse. So just things like that, just knowing where to put everyone and and go from there, um, and just seeing where everybody's strengths are more than anything. And, and did you learn some different ways of how to like how to talk to everybody, of like some tricks of yeah. how to not come off maybe as much of an asshole? <laughs> yeah, and that's one thing you know. It's just there's and there's a fine line, you know. You have to, you know, you have to learn to encourage people when they need to be encouraged and people learn differently as well you know you have to give people compliments that do better when they're complimented and you know if you criticize someone that can't take criticism it doesn't work either so it's kind of their personality type you know just and learn how do you think a way to go about that like so you say somebody that can't take criticism like how do you reckon like a way to try to get that person to get better like what's a good way to go about that yeah or see the things that everybody else is seeing you know um i I think you just pick their strong points and and you go off of that you know i have i'm not gonna name any names but i have a really good friend that you know you you criticize him and he just kind of clams up and he doesn't do good but you give him some compliments and you point out some good things that he's doing and kind of phrase it in a different way and he really excels and and i think I think people just learn differently and, and, you know, respond from criticism and and compliments in a different way. Um, Me, I want to know what I'm doing wrong, and I don't want to do that thing wrong again. And I don't care if it's right, you know. I don't want a pat on the back when I'm practicing. You know, I want a pat on the back, you know, at the competition on the award stand is what I want. You know, I don't want to compliment when I'm practicing, and it does. So, but... But what's good for me is not good for everyone else, you know. And so it's you have to learn people's personality types, for sure. Yeah, but it's super yeah. hard when you like, like. It's just a knee jerk reaction. You see him doing something, you just want to like rip out. Like, what the fuck are you doing? That's not smart. Yeah. <laughs> like, like it's, you're just you're just like instantly coming out with how you think about yourself. But you have to like urge, put on yeah. the brakes. Like, yeah, okay, <laughs> like yeah. that's not gonna go good. Yeah. <laughs> like, they didn't like that. And that's past. what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's one thing I like working with Jake. You know, Jake and I can be blunt with one another, you know, and all the time, you know, it's just, 
it's great, you know, because I don't get offended. He doesn't get offended, and, you know, it just, it works well, you know. But other people, you can't do that, you know. So it's, you know, you have to kind of choose your words carefully. It's hard, especially, I think I, I think we're in more of, like, defense mode now as ever as horseshoers with the internet of, like, because just people yeah. put on a picture and they're just ready to start defending it, you know, right away. And it's like, you yeah. should. If you put on something, you probably should be able to defend it, but it's like, a, it's hard. It's half the people commenting on it can't do shit anyways. They can't do yeah. the things that they're telling you to do or, like, they couldn't do any better of a job. But then, like, you might miss out on some of those better comments in there from people that are actually trying to help yeah. out. But And you just accept it's, criticism it's a, it's from everyone. Thing. Yeah, just take it with a grain of salt, you know, and you just, you just kind of have to weed through it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, yeah. People, people have a hard time with that, though. It's a yeah. funny thing. <laughs> well, I was talking with uh, Jake this weekend, and a question that I asked him was, uh, do you remember what some of the hardest contests, like some of the hardest classes were, like through the years of competing? And he said the classes at Calgary were some of the toughest he's ever had to do. Is that kind of like the same for you, or do you know remember what some of the toughest uh, classes or contests are that you've had to do? Yeah, Calgary was the toughest, I'd have to say, because you just it was just grueling. You'd have a go in the morning, and then you have a go in the evening. But what was the kicker was the last day. You had to shoe a pair of fronts, three-quarter fuller, in an hour. So imagine yeah. how you feel after that kind of go. You just... And a normal contest, you do that one go a day. And then 30 minutes later, you have to turn around and do it again on the back feet, three-quarter fuller in an hour. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> so it just – it you, you, you don't think you could possibly get it done when you start that second go. You know, you, you're just spent. Everything you had was on that first go, you know, and you have to turn around and do it one more time. And that was – that's probably the hardest thing to do for sure. So just, do you think like some of these classes where we do like one foot in a specimen in an hour or 70 minutes, do you think that could be shortened or is that still kind of like an ample amount of time? No, I think it's a good amount of time. Um, it's, yeah. it just, with the shorter time limits, you have bigger and greater mistakes because you don't have time to fix things. Um, it's just mm -hmm. like, well, was at the AFT practice a few weeks ago, and they were running the Calgary goes. And, you know, you got a mass lot, fully fullered shoe on the foot, fully fullered roadster in an hour. You don't have time to fix anything. It's, you know, if your quarter's missed and your heel's missed, it, it stays. You know, you have a couple you, – you might have one more trip to the foot, but you better have it right the first time. So that – the, the mistakes are amplified when the time limits are that short. But but I, I think when you make it too hard at the, you know, at the at the normal WCBs, when you have a lot of cat ones and twos and threes mixed in, I, I think you discourage good horseshoeing when you make the time limits too hard. You know, they need to be at Calgary mm -hmm. so you can kind of separate everyone, you know, and you're crowning a world champion, and they should be. But at the other contests, we're trying to do good horseshoeing and promote good horseshoeing. And, you know, you're splitting hair sometimes, but that's just the way it's got to be. You know, you got to give the yeah. guys up and, and coming bring people a in. chance. Yeah. And it's about education for those guys. So, 
if you're just trying to make them do unrealistic things in, in an hour, you know, or, or less, you're not really helping them. So you, you, it's, you got to help those guys. Yeah, no, sense. I think that's a good point, especially because WCB is kind of a different beast where it has the Cat 1s, Cat 2s all mixed in there yeah. in the pot where Calgary and Spruce Meadows is just going to be the top guys. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't yeah. be any lower cat, cats mixed up in there. They should all kind of be the upper end of the, the chalant. And, yeah, and, like, and the whole reason for competing is – We hear this thrown is, out all the time now. Yeah. yeah, keep going. Keep going. Well, I'm just saying the whole reason for competing is – for education, you know, and it doesn't matter if Chris Madrid or Stan Mullen wins, you know, the, the last contest. It's all about all 80 guys going that are learning how to build shoes, and, and it's education. That's that's the whole point of this competing. It's it's not to promote anyone's ego. And, yeah, you know, crowning a champion is, is great, and you got to do that, but the whole point of the WCB is – education through competition and i firmly believe that no that's that actually that transit that was a perfect transition comment there that you <laughs> hear this said all the time now or like commenting all the time of and it's not just one person i'm not just calling out jim quick here but it's like you <laughs> saying that like uh these contests are blacksmithing contests now they're not horseshoeing contests well like and it's like it, it, se- it seems like we get, like, really segregated on, like, well, there's either forging and then there's horseshoeing. You know, like, they can't go together or something. It's like, and we, we always hear the same arguments on our side of, like, oh, one hand washes the other. It all kind of goes together. But we, you hear, like, the, like, oh, contests have changed and everything. And I haven't been around long enough to know, like, if contests have changed or not. You know, I've just been around hmm. for WCB. That's, that's been my co- competition world. And so, like, from your side, you've been around for quite a while, that you've seen convention when it was real prime, Calgary was real prime. Do you think that has, like, that we changed in our ways of competition a lot? And do you think that the blacksmithing part of our competitions are hurting our horseshoeing side? No, I think it's a skill test for a certain criteria. And that criteria has evolved over time. I was I was a little upset when they changed the convention fit. Like it was a dime's length and a dime's width forever, and and it was criticized and saying, "Well, that's not good horseshoeing. That's not the way we shoe horses every day." But it's a certain criteria that you have to you have to meet when you're competing, and if you can do that, you can do anything. You know, so you have to make the contest objective. If it's subjective, and you just pick your friends as a winner, it doesn't do any good. So you have to have a certain skill test, and the blacksmithing elements are a part of that skill test. If you can create crisp corners on a bar shoe, you can create any kind of bar shoe. Um, and I firmly believe what Jim Poor says, that square corners don't belong on a horse's foot. But, but if you can make a square corner, you can make a round one. You know, so it's just mm-hmm. it's, all of those elements are a skill test, and – Creating that skill test is what makes us better horseshoers on a day-to-day basis. And do you think I that agree. we like the contests have changed a lot since back then? Do you think like, or do you think we're still kind of in the same route a little bit? No, I, th- I think 
I think contests are pretty much the same. Um, the WCBs change things for sure. You know, before you have would have the local contest with Division One, Two, and Three, you know, and so on. And then now it's, you know, the WCB. We're working out of a Coke fire, you know, and everybody's making the same shoe. And and I, I think there's a lot of merit to that. But learning how to work out of a Coke fire, I think, is really a good skill set to learn, you know, and, and a lot of people would argue, you know, with that, of course, but just learning to run a fire and learning heats and a system and, and all that, I think is just, I think it's, I, th I think it's the same. It's just it's maybe spun a little bit different way, but it's, but, but I, I think, I think the mark on the wall is gradually going up, you know, and, and I think Craig has a lot of credit for doing that because he just he creates a lot of enthusiasm and you know and the more people you get in that pool and the more contests you can have you know you just you just constantly making the bar go up and the only way you can make the bar go up is make yeah. better and more precise shoes if if that makes any sense you know you just can't be making you know three-quarter fuller you know shoes on you know and and i'm a firm believer that making a three-quarter fullered shoe on the foot is the hardest test you can you, you can do, you know, because it's just putting all the basics into a shoeing job is perfectly is almost impossible. And that's just, that's my opinion. Do you think no. there's a specific way that they should be fit up when you say that, like the test? Um. I think a hunter test is just versus like that the holy grail of a fit, you know. It either fits or it doesn't, you know, on a hunter test, you don't know, just penny on a penny. Um it just yeah. I always loved it when we'd go to the classic and on Cat Six and the Hunter Day was always my favorite, you know, because it just if it if it came, it was great. But if you you cut the wrong amount of steel at the guillotine you lost, you know, so it's pretty cool. Yeah. But no, but I think, think it's about a, on a pleasure fit, you have a lot no of leeway like suggestion. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you can, where it's like, what's well, a different classic roadster day and draft day. could be kind of anywhere, but tool and fuller day has to be like right there. There's no, yeah. I mean, you on a pleasure fit, you can be three eighths long or half an inch long. What's the difference? You know, but you're your 16th off on the hunter day you're out you know so it's it's a big difference to me it's huge i i think it's a good point to, to make about like the wcb is that we usually when we're shoeing the horse there like it gets down it's always a basic shoe on the horse yeah like we never have anything too crazy going on, on the horse it's either like concave three-quarter fuller or a plain stamp and so it's yeah. like the other parts of it are just kind of a test to get to see if you are good enough to just put a plain stamp on a horse, you know, like if you can't make a nice other shoe in the top 40, you can't get on to the, to the plain stamp part. Like they're not going to yeah. let you go nail on to a live horse. Right. Yeah. And I never try to get crazy. When was on... the? Yeah. Keep going. I just, I, I never try to get crazy when I'm judging a contest. I don't, I just want a plain chewing job and that's, that's the hardest 
test, you know, just to put all your basics into that. And putting all the bells and whistles on there are just distractions, really, and just plain old shoe and job. It's basically, yeah. you want to try to aim for, like, center of stock then, fitting them up? Center, yep, center of stock, fit up, perimeter fit, you know, it just, it's what I like to see. And no second trims, fit what you trim, and that's a tough test for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, it is tough. Is there certain things you're looking for in your knife and knife work when you're going to judge the sh- a foot? Um, usually less is more. So I try to be conservative. And if if a judge comes to a foot and they look at it and all oh, this foot's a little long, this guy should have knifed out more. You know, he might dock you. You know, a tenth of a point, two tenths of a point, but. If you take it short and you scalp it and he thinks it's too short, he's going to dock you a point or, you know, point and a half. He's going to be really mad. So you, you have to be careful and err on the side of caution when it comes to knife work. And, you know, it's one of those things where everybody leaves a little bit different length. So you have to be just conservative on your trim you know, and just don't do anything to hang yourself. One of the hard parts for me to decide on when I'm trimming a foot is the bars, how much to trim the bars. And mm-hmm. I feel like I probably over trim them each time because you see a lot of like pictures of like guys like Stan and Dylan, like they're, the bars pretty much go all the way to the frog. Like they just draw one straight, straight line and goes all the way down. Yeah. So like, how do you determine how much how much bar to trim or to leave there or where they should terminate at or if they shouldn't if i have a good strong bar i'll leave it um but i don't i don't get real picky about that as well and that's where you just get in a subjective part of judging you know it's like do you leave the bar do as long as it's clean neat and you know if that bar is about to flake out and you're trying to stand it up i mean i can take my thumbnail to it and flick it out it probably doesn't need to be there, um, but I don't get I don't get too hung up on on details like that. I mean, medial lateral balance. You know, you put a hundred horseshoers in the room, and you know, you ask them, you're going to get a hundred different p- opinions. So I don't get too crazy on medial lateral balance either. You know, but flat's important because flat's flat. But is this foot high outside, yeah. high inside? As long as it's within reason. You know, if it's you know a quarter inch high outside when you go to pick <clears> it up. Yeah, you're going to dock the guy. But, you know, if it's, you know, eighth inch high on the outside, according to your opinion, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dock him for that. Just because then it gets into a theory contest. And, I mean, other horseshoers I work with all the time, you know, they're world class horseshoers. They disagree on balance. So, how are we all going to agree on balance at a contest? We're not. And, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> so is that something like, obviously that's something like you and Spud are going to have to like talk over before, right? Or yeah. you guys judge completely separate and then they're added together. Uh, I think we're going to judge together. I think it's going to be more fair and transparent that way. Um, we kind of talked about that a little bit. but and, and that's, as long as everybody's on the same page and talking about things, I think it's can be the it'll be the most fair you know just when 
when people don't see what's going on and all that, you know, I like the open judging, judging in front of everyone and being transparent, you know, and that way, Mm -hmm. you know, just, and being, being fair, the contest being fair is the most important thing to me and not being biased. Um, everyone's biased and it's hard to overcome that, you know, I mean, yeah. We're all biased. We all have people we like, and we all have people we don't like, and we all have people we want to see do good, and, and vice versa. But yeah. trying to take the subjectivity out of it and be fair to everyone is the most important thing to me. And trying to overcome my own biases is is what I've been thinking about a lot, yeah, for sure. I bet. Like, do you have that when you go up to every single foot? Like, when you're trimming your day to day, are you thinking about how you would judge that? Um, not really. You know, it's my nip and burn. You know, I don't really judge that. You know, so just <laughs> trying to get them done. It's been really hot at home, so we just try to get them done. You know, so when it's 108 <laughs> outside, we, you don't really care about two rass strokes here you're just gonna <laughs> you're gonna get it done <laughs> <laughs> i could see that i wouldn't be going out to shoot horses if it was 108 yeah. <laughs> oh, man. yeah do you have <laughs> any experience like do you have any experience working with spud outside of the uh exchange that you did years ago um i don't you know, I've seen him, I've seen him a lot of times, but, and, and I like Spud and we, you know, we hung out a lot, but, but ever since then, I, I don't think we, we worked together. So I'm, I'm excited about judging with him. I know Milster's judged with him and really liked him. And then Hausman, one of my good friends, he judged with him as well. And he was really high on judging with Spud. So, um, he's, I'm, I'm excited about it. You know, I've heard, heard nothing but great things about judging with spuds so i'm excited about it that's good i bet yeah that's a pretty exciting thing overall so how we kind of skipped over a little bit but when was the first year you guys put cat six together oh it's been this is gonna make a liar out of me but maybe 2012 maybe i don't know something like that but we Oh, I have to go back and look, but yeah, I can't even remember. But Did you guys win it that it was... first year you went? No, we we didn't win it for a couple of years. We were, I think, we were second a couple of times, and then we finally won it. But um, but yeah, we yeah, it was a couple of tough years. It was WCB team had a really good year one year, and they might have won in. I'm just I'm trying to think. Did you ever try to shoot for making the WCB team, or was it because you were kind of work focused on the AFT, or that came afterwards? Oh, that the WCB came well after I was done competing. Really, um, WCB team. I see. WCB team came or WCB came into existence about 2007, so I was I was pretty much done in 04. I competed a little bit in 05, 06, but but yeah, I was pretty much pretty much a has-been by that point. And then, then we decided to do the classic <laughs> together. <you know>? So, <laughs> but Yeah. 
Yeah, how many years did you guys win the Classic? Uh, three, maybe. Something like that. But Okay. Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah, we were. And those were always our funnest times. We'd always get together and, you know, have half a dozen practices and, you know, and choreograph everything. And that was that, – those were my funnest times competing. Get everything. Just get, getting oh, together. Oh, That was like uh, my second big contest I ever went to was classic, and uh-huh. you guys showed. I hadn't met any of anybody pretty much yet, and you guys showed up like rock stars in this like <laughs> blacked out suburban, like oh. rolling in like <laughs> right before the go, just like Austin would. I at that time you wouldn't talk to anybody. You were just outside pacing, like the oh. whole time. I was, time puke. I was puking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that now, but I was like, man, that guy is serious right now. He won't even yeah. talk to anybody. He is in the yeah. zone. Yeah. <laughs> <He is>. yeah. <laughs> and it was so and hard I with those you guys. guys like laid down the work. It was like, wow, I didn't even know horseshoeing could be this good. Like I had no to, idea. It was so hard being on that team because you didn't want to let anybody down, you know, because you knew the other guys were going to throw down a good job, you know, and it was just – it was so mm-hmm. hard just to not screw up, you know, and it was, and I was the bill poor, you know, I was the one that had to go first and get out of everybody's way. And, you know, it was my job to get my eight eights all the way across and get my job done in 50 minutes and then get out of the way of the other guys. And, you know, Jake and Milster and Gene could, you know, spend time getting points and it didn't matter how long I took. If I took, 30 minutes or three hours, I was going to get the same scores anyway, so I might as well just get out of everybody, out of everybody's way fast and then let them guys get their points and work their magic. And then, So that was always fun, you know, just trying to figure out how to choreograph that and, you know, and, and maximize the most amount of points we could, could, could get. In the, like the last couple of years you guys were doing it, were you guys pretty much sticking to the same plan by that point? Yeah, we we changed a little bit. I know. I know Gene got tired of doing the right front, and he wanted to do a hind. So him and Milster switched, and Milster came and did a front foot with me, and then Gene and Jake were doing the hinds. But, and we changed the order a little bit, you know, and kind of a little bit here and there. But the last couple of years we did it, we didn't practice that many times. You know, we kind of we kind of had a system and. You know, our lives got busy, and, you know, it was just harder and harder to get together. And, you know, we we pretty much knew the system. And, you know, the last year we went, we might have practiced once or twice, and then, then we went. Um, and, and that's kind of how it goes. You know, it's just like you, yeah. you know, you just – other things get important in your life, and, you know, that kind of gets put on the back burner and, you know, and went from there. So you've kind of came a little bit like uh, it's I think it's funny that you said before that you didn't really want to shoe horses for a living. And it kind of seems like now you're trying to do more things that aren't horseshoe. Like you're still staying in the horseshoeing realm, but you're not trying to get underneath of a horse as much. And so it seems like you've been in the shop more. What made you finally just take that leap and start going that direction? Um. My back more than anything, you know, I, I love shoeing horses, but I don't know, two or three years ago, my back got really bad and it's kind of a wake up call, 
when when your body hurts all the time and so I was just I love making things in the shop and, and I love shoeing horses but it's just kind of a point where at the end of the day you just your body hurts and you're miserable and you can't sleep you know and it just that kind of you know pushed me to make that transition to work in the shop more you know and I love working with my hands and I love creating things and you know designing things on the CAD and, and all that but so that that kind of kind of pushed me in that direction because I knew I knew my back wasn't going to last much longer and but but it was kind of that kind of sucked too because I love shooting horses you know and I, I love going out and you know seeing my clients and working on horses and and all that and so I, I pretty much quit shooting horses for year and a half two years and then now I'm back to shoeing horses again you know started shoeing horses last summer so I'm back at it did a you year have like a again. did you have like an accident or something that hurt your back or to just kind of just started hurting just from years of work no just stupidity um when I was on the team I would just shoe horses I would bend shoe horses for three days and then go to a team practice and then go to a clinic and you know get home late at Sunday night and up at five o'clock in the morning going to shoe horses and you know long hours and and my just father abuse. told me he said yeah he said you better pace yourself boy you know and like ah you know I was 21 22 invincible but you know just yeah. I just blew my back out you know good just, old days you know and I got a bad back as it is and then you know just just abusing it and and the, the traveling more than anything you know I, I went to Florida for eight years and you know just jumping on an airplane and trying to shoe all your horses and get back home and you know just just pushing it and then you're behind when you get home so it's just just thinking your body's invincible and then one day you wake up and you can't get off the floor it's just a real wake-up call you know for sure do you think you have a good balance now yeah yeah i work in the shop some and i just i limit myself to three horses a day and i do that three or four days a week and i do the best job i can and and i, I think that's a good system for me i'm in a good area i can get good money to shoe horses and I don't have to kill myself. If I do any more than that, my back really pays for it. And so having that balance is, is really something. It, it's it's taken a lot of work to figure out, but it, I'm liking where it is now for sure. And so were you already doing stuff on the CAD before you decided to start doing making tools then? Yeah, I did CAD stuff in high school and did a few CAD competitions and then kind of went from there. I did a little bit in college and and Jim Porconic got me into it. You know, I would I would go to Jim's and kind of help him with his CAD and you know, he, Jim has his own redneck system of how to make things work in his in his uh in his shop. You know, and he's the smartest guy I know. You know, he just he just yeah. he knows he has to take fifty thousands here and fifty thousands there and just you know he knows exactly what he needs to do but to do it properly on the computer is not his strong suit so you know i would you know <laughs> work on the computer with him and that was a lot of fun and and he's the one that kind of got me into the machine well he is the one that got me in the machine and him and jim keith and just learning from them and just 
taking the, the new modern CAD systems and implementing those and, you know, it's been a lot of fun. It just, it's so much fun to create something on the computer screen and then go throw it in the mill and then go make that, you know, and learning, figuring out Is that kind of how you got to start? Because I've seen you starting to, like, on your social media, like, you'll post these, like, uh, I don't know what you call it. Is it the CAD of, the, like, the foot? And then you've, uh -huh. like, made a horseshoe on it. Is that yeah. kind of the same concept then? And what exactly. gave you that idea? You know, it all starts with a 2D sketch, you know, and you create a shoe and then you create these different lofts and it just, you know, it's, and, and that, that foot model has been a lot of fun trying to create because it just, you do one thing to it and it turns into a Picasso, you know, it's just, and then you have to go back yeah. and fix it, you know, and, and cause everything on that model has a relation with another thing, you know? So if you change one thing, it's going to change that relation with that other thing and then it's going to flip something. And so that's something that's been a lot of fun just trying to create something. It's like it creates a distortion. Yeah. So it's just, but trying to create a free form object like a horse's foot is, it's been a lot of, a lot of fun. And, it, and it's a great teaching tool. I think demonstrating like the center of stock, for instance, you know, I shot horses for 10 years before I knew exactly what center stock was. You know, I was on the American Ferries team and I didn't know what a center stock was, you know, it's just, and you know, I would never admit it back then, but I didn't know. And I wanted to be able to demonstrate what center of stock exactly was, you know, and it just, and I think that's, and being able to make items appear and reappear and lines and all that, I think are really good teaching aids to, to demonstrate, you know, what things are such as center of stock, things like that. How much did it change the way you think of feet when you started making those 3d models and like the distortion on the computer would change? Like that has to have some relation in real life. Cause it seems like we work in the same things. Like we change something here and it affects something, you know, you change a heel and it affects the yeah. tongue and such. Like, and it does, you know, and, and, and it, and it's going back to the comments on social media, people would criticize the, you know, that's not the way a real foot is, or, you know, real feet aren't symmetrical, you know, and, and all that, you know, and it's just, but it, it's so hard to make something asymmetrical on that model. And, and, and that's what I'm working on now is I'm working on a deal on symmetry and, you know, and having the toe symmetrical and, and I won't get into it too much, but that's kind of my next thing. But, oh, <laughs> little teaser, every, little teaser there. every, t every time I click on something, it just it's back to square one and it's just like it's it's a disaster really? so it's just it's it's a lot of trial and error <laughs> how many know? hours so do you think you have in there oh i got oh 100 more than 100 probably <laughs> in that thing <laughs> but it's not it's not all at once it's just like it's a sunday afternoon couple hours you know Tuesday morning, you know, I get up at four o'clock in the morning. I can't sleep. I'll work on it a little bit. You know, it's not all at one whack, but it's, it's a lot of time in it for sure. You can, oh, that worked. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. You know, and then, and I have so many requests on for people that want to use it in their lectures and want to demonstrate this. And, and I've made a lot of promises and I'm kind of scared about it because it's just <laughs> doing all that, doing what they want and requesting is like, it's, pretty hard you know it's just like Derek Gardner wanted me to do something on the distortion and and I've been working on it for 
for a long time and I, I still can't make the model <laughs> cooperate but you know it's one of those things oh yeah that'll take me a few hours I'll get it done and then it just it doesn't work and it, it'll work eventually but it just it's a frustrating you know, you're kind of hate relationship. you're kind of a yes man though yeah I do in say general, yes you're a guy in yeah. general <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, like you're, I feel like I've been around you in public. Even people come up and like yeah. it's nonstop or asking you for something. You're yeah. like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got a long list of people mad at me for projects I haven't done. You being one included, you know. So you know, I just oh, I, I let you to... off the hook a while ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're a busy guy. That's it's it's easy though to let a guy like you off the hook because you're. You're, it's not like you're sitting still. It's not like you're yeah. not doing anything. You're you're doing something all the time. That's yeah. you're generally. It's pretty funny to me that you're like one of my favorite people to follow, and you don't like. If I if I could like give like a good chunk of my followers to somebody, be like go watch what Austin's doing. Don't watch what I'm yeah. doing. Then I'm doing mm-hmm. dumb shit. Austin's smart. <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> <He's a> dude. <laughs> you're the first guy i ever saw like put a reel together like a like a a facebook video and it was you i think it was you mate you did like a few days of making a feather damascus pocket knife Uh uh-huh uh-huh it it was like a while back and it was like man that blew my mind that you edited a video together Uh and look at you now (laughs) this guy (laughs) 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 this guy's next level (laughs) he's doing some stuff here No, and that's it's, it's, so you kind of working now is like you're pretty deep into this pad game it seems yeah you know been working with fpd and came out with a pad and you know and i put a my favorite thing to do is put a heart bar on a horse and you know and it's so time consuming to put a heart bar on you either got to weld the frog plate in or you got to make a heart bar from scratch and you know i think frog support really helps a lot of horses and i put a million castle pat plastic pads on and Myron McLean pads on over the years and you know and it just kind of came up with my own little pad and you know and it's just it's been doing really good and we're really excited about it and working with FPD I haven't seen one in person really what makes it different oh just I wanted to make something that was just easy to apply and you know and just you know times time saving really more than anything and having adequate amount of frog support and just mm-hmm. putting some impression material on and making something quick and easy to apply and versatile you know and and that was my main objective and it's been it really like good reviews a lot of the older i don't use a lot of pads anyway so i'm not real educated mm-hmm. on this but it's like a lot of the older frog support pads had a very wide frog yeah and it seems mm-hmm. like your fro- frog sport is a little bit more narrow. So, like, I, I'm assuming so it's easier to fit up on horses. Yeah. Do you think a horse needs a lot of width to the frog support to, to work? No, I don't think so. You know, the ground-bearing surface, you, you want some, but it's if it's too wide, it's it's difficult to fit. You know, and then your heels are too wide, and then, you know, you go to fit your shoe, and, and you got to grind a lot of the frog plate away, you know, so having – having a little bit of heel check relief where you can fit those heels and fit the shoe like you normally would and then just rivet your pad on just saves a lot of time you know and that's that was the main thing is i was scratching my own itch when i made made the pads you know it's just 
I bought all these different frog support pads for a horse. Jake and I did, and none of them would work. You know, it's like, well, I need to do this to it, and I need to do that to it. And then they made one that was really versatile that would work on a, all feet, fronts and hinds, and, you know, and you didn't have to carry a million different pads, you know, in, in your truck just to make something work, you know. And that was About how many different pads would a guy need to carry then in yours? Like how many different sizes do you offer? Um, three different sizes. We're, we have a small and a medium now, and then we're going to do a large. And the, we're making a mold right one? now for that. Yeah, well, it's not really a draft, but it'll go up to – it'll do a four, five, six, really, um, on shoe size. Okay. And then, yeah, so it's bigger. Is bigger there foot. any other – is there any other frog support that big out there? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think Castle so. Castle, ma- Castle makes a big frog support pad. <laughs> it's a – it's a gargantuan mm-hmm. frog support pad. Oh, yeah. Okay. But for, how but thick are you yours? Covered, are they like the same thickness as the leather? Uh, they're thinner. They're eighth of an inch. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. That's yeah, very so, nice. So basically, that's we're covering double clips. Double double lot through four. You know, and that's you know it's going to be eighty five percent of the horses. And then you know if you're trying to fit anything smaller or bigger than that. It's not really worth making a mold for, so you kind of have to do the masses on that. And then, is it something you do in house, like the making the pads, or is that somewhere you have to do that out of house? No, we use an injection molder, and you know, I did all the design work and all that. But they have huge injection molding machines that are, you know, half as long as my shop. You know, that do multiple tons oh, of press, you know, it's, it's, it's quite the operation. And Are sure. you making the dyes for it? No, no, I'm not. You know, I just do that. The that's like work. super high tolerance, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're, they have to be vented. They have to have ejector pins. It, it's a really elaborate system. I started out going to make the molds initially and I was like, way, it, it was way over my head. And it's one thing I'm, I'm trying <laughs> really? to learn and I want to do, but it's, you know, my redneck operation's not near good enough for, you know, doing all that. It's, it's pretty, it's, it's that's pretty technical stuff. I, I like, so are you, I like, you put on a picture or a video earlier of, it was like, it looked like you were 3d printing one of the pads. Yeah. Is that just trying to see if the if the CAD drawing's good before you send it off to the die maker? Then, oh, the 3D printer is just is a wonderful because you can I can create what I want on the screen and then 3D print it and it's a really tough resin and and I can try them out. But the downside is it takes several hours to 3D print one one pad, so it's mm. perfect for prototyping. You know, on a weekend, I can I can prototype a pair of pads, and I can try them out. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. You know, I'll take it to Jake and see what he thinks, and Mark and you know Gene, different guys, and then you know, oh, I'd change this, and then I can make the changes on my computer screen, and then I can print them again, and then go from there. Um, so that's re- really helps in the design process more than anything. It's not really practical for production, but. I don't have to machine anything, you know, before I had 3D printer, I would machine a mold and then pour the mold and then 
pull it out of that, but I'd have a couple of days in making a mold. But but on the, with a three D printer, I just click and put it and just leave it alone, and you know, overnight, and I come back and come back the next morning, and I ex- have exactly what was on my computer screen, and I can test it out. You know, it's just have you tried like, three D printing one of those foot models yet? No, but that's it's on my list. I want to machine one out. I think I think it's going to come out better machining it, and like machine really? it out of aluminum or something. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to machine a model out of it. That would be sick. <laughs> yeah. So it's that that's on my list to do. That'd be really excited sick. to see that. <laughs> but I gotta I gotta mark some things off the list before I start that project. <laughs> That'd be quite quite the runtime, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Or just probably hard trying to hold on to it. Yeah. Like getting the dang thing in a vice. Yeah. I'll probably put it in the fourth axis and then it would just rotate around and, and then you would have a sprue holding it. And then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> magic. Just yeah. magic. Just magic. <laughs> so these, what's, like, these... it's something I wanted to ask you about is like, what's the difference and how, is it like the machine? Is it the CAD or what? Like, your name stamps that you would make are just like perfect, total detailed. They look very, very good. Some are just rougher. Like where, where, where does that come from? Why are yours so much cleaner and better? It's just, it's the precision tools using, um, I use points that, bits that come to a perfect point. You know, so if you use a bit that's dull or just has a little bit, maybe a five thousandths tip, you can only make certain sharp corners, internal corners, because machining, you have to, internal corners are really hard on machining. So you have to have a really fast bit. Are you doing it under a microscope? No. Just, I just, no, the machine he's not does watching it. it. Yeah. Yeah, no, you can't. Oh. There's so much. There's so much coolant going everywhere. You can't see anything. So you just, you just hope and pray. Twenty five minutes yeah, later, it's coming gu- out he's right. He's not guiding. Yeah. He's not guiding it himself. Yeah, I was bro. thinking like, <laughs> when you had said you got these uh, little dies or whatever, like they go down to this. I was thinking like, in the finishing process, you're going in and cleaning them up. You know. Well, the machine not, like, is the whole yeah. thing itself. But but you're running those yeah those bits. At, 12,000 RPM and they get hot and they're carbide. So you have to keep gallons of coolant just going on them or, you know, and half the time they're breaking anyway and you're replacing them. And that's one frustrating thing no about kidding. making a stamp is, you know, they're, they're coming down to a perfect point and, you know, you're working D2 and D2 is just really tough to machine. And then the tips break all the time. And then, so you have to, have to replace those and do you even expensive do you even know that it broke yeah. like when it no. broke or you just had to like restart huh? yeah there's there's about eight different tools that it goes through it, it starts working it's it starts with a bigger bit and then it goes smaller and smaller and smaller and then you know the tool paths get finer and finer and finer but uh um i'll have it stop on the tool change and then that way i can check the bit and make sure it survived and if it didn't survive i'll re- rerun that cycle with that tool you know replace the tool and rerun that cycle oh, okay. and then and then go on but um you can also have the machine check it but it won't always catch 
a minor little chip in the tool or something. So it's just just as easy just to have the machine stop before a tool change, and you can check the bit. The bit's good, then you let it tool change and it rock on. Is it as easy as, like, somebody sends you a logo, like a JPEG or something, and then you upload it onto your computer, and then you can just... Cut it out no. or no? <laughs> no. <laughs> really? Most of, the, most of the time, and it's one of the reasons why I'm not doing it anymore. It's just there's so much yeah. computer work in it. And I have had people send me, more people send me embroidery, like they'll send me a picture of their shirt, embroidery logo <laughs> on their shirt, and say, want me to make a stamp out of that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just too much. You know, black and white images are pretty mm-hmm. easy, but... Colors make things difficult, but it's it's a lot of erasing and, you know, picking things and, you know, because the stamps are binary. There's either a line there or it's not. There's no shading. There's no grays. There's, you know, it's all line or no line. And that's, that's one thing you have to realize when you're making a stamp. I mean, people will send you these elaborate logos with, you know, shading and colors and, you know, trees and things like that. And you can't do that because you have to, you, you only can create a line. And if it's just a blah in a piece of metal, you can't see it. It won't pronounce itself. But, yeah. So the, the best touch marks are always the simplest ones, really. It's, um, Riley's is borderline. Think, it comes out good, yeah. but it, it's almost That's a little too busy. Is, it's almost a little too yeah. busy. But, but it's just it is simple enough where like, it comes out. But yours are still, when you make my stamps, it's different than when I, like other stamps I've had. Other stamps I've had have been a blob for all the branches and everything. Mm-hmm. And like the first time I put your stamp in, is like he literally has a broken off branch, like halfway. Like you nailed every yeah. little detail. So like yeah. when somebody sends you, and I do think it was a little bit like you dug your own grave there a little bit because I remember you posted one time, it's like, you could even draw a sketch on a napkin and I'll get you a stamp made. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when, so when, dude, when yeah. dude sent you a sketch on the napkin, how many hours do you think you had into his stamp by the time you were done? It's not that bad. You know, it just depends on what it is. Your stamp was bad and Nigel Fennell's stamp was bad. <laughs> um, you know, he had the, the you know, the, fe- oh, yeah. the feathers. Oh, my God. Those feathers were yeah. just... Is is almost as bad as the tree branches, but those two were, were pretty bad. <laughs> so it's always those little those little details where you have to go in and pick the tool path. You know, you have to go in and zoom in and and then you have to have that tiny little bit that comes down to a point, you know, that's fragile. And then you're replacing that three or four times when you're making something like Riley's stamp, you know during the process so just just each time like so like each time you made my stamp you like just knew you were going to break a bunch of those fine bits yeah and you're surprised sometimes it'll survive and sometimes it just i I don't know if you get a bad batch of bits or what but it just you run the same tool path you run the same speed feeds don't change anything and you'll break three in a row and then then one or survive four stamps you know you just never know it's it's pretty wild well, could you imagine trying to heat treat those stamps, or the, the, like those those dies, those little cutters? I yeah, couldn't imagine. Like, well, they're carbide. I so I, they, I barely yeah. sort of like understand heat treating a hammer, and that thing's pretty big. Yeah. Well, they're like, they're they're grinding them with diamond is what they're doing. 
oh, it's okay. carbide. Yeah. So you just they have these diamond cutters that cut the carbide bits. That's <laughs> I just want people to like get how like because I'm sure when they see oh a stamp's gonna cost me two hundred bucks or whatever you know they're like oh that kind of a lot it's like there is so many hours yeah. like each one of those little cutters costs quite a bit not even to mention the machine that the cutter is sitting in how much yeah. that bad dog <laughs> yeah. cost of like yeah. and then how many hours you got in top of it like it's just it's it's i understand completely why you wouldn't want to do it too much especially for the hard part that are a bunch of complainers and then the heat treats the hardest part on them they're d2 and it's just you got to have something that's going to hold up to cold stamping and hot stamping and if you make something that hard it's going to explode or if you don't make it hard enough it's just going to mushroom, you know, and the stamp's not going to hold up. So it's, it's so hard finding that fine line on the heat treatment. And, you know, I've had, I've had both. I've had, you know, stamps that just didn't last and just mushroomed away. And then I've had a billion of them explode, you know, and, and then you got to make another one and replace it. You know, it's just, that, that's the most frustrating part, you know, just making something that small, trying to hold up to that much abuse is, it's really hard. Yeah. That's, I, I, I have no delusions on mine of like that they I it's a consumable item. Yeah. I stick that thing underneath of a four hundred pound power <laughs> hammer. Big red. And drive it into a rounding hammer. It's just like some, some of the let, some of the lettering on the bottom is gonna get a little smudged after a while. Like yeah. this is gonna yeah. happen. I'm not I heard I heard but, but I, I think, but I, I think that's better that Jay because like a J would break a sharp uh, punch a year. Like you would go through a name pa- stamp a year. So I think that's yeah. probably what they you get out of them. Yeah, and I think putting it under the power hammer and that quick hit is probably better for your stamp than anything. You know, when when people put it on there and they let it heat up and then they look at it and then they hit it and then you know it's losing its heat treatment and you know just I think it's better to be quick. I never thought about that too much, but on that, like, do you think that happens to guys' four punches too? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think they just, they get too hot. S7 can take the shock. You can, you can punch cold all day long and your punch won't screw up, but you punch yellow hot steel, it's going to start mushrooming pretty quick. It's one thing I learned a long time and ago. And so that's something I get yeah. people to ask me that all the time. Like, the diff- do I think there's a big difference between S7 and H13 for making folders or punches out of mm-hmm. or pritchels? Do you, have you found a big difference in them? And have you found certain ones that you use for certain things? I've almost never used that H13. I don't, I don't even know anything about it. I just always used S7, you know, I've, grown up in around Jim poor and he's always used S7 and that's just one thing that I've almost always used is S7 stuff so um I just can't think of any instance where I've had any H13 where I've used any of it and I just kind of just just learning from from Jim and but I had no reason for it what about you have you did you try making the name stamps out of S7 at all yeah yeah i made s7 for for a while and then then i changed over to d2 but the 
D2 is quite a bit harder than S7. It'll it'll hold up a lot better. It's uh, so. Why do you think we don't make like uh, head stamps or drifts out of the D2? Then it's just not it's good for hard. the shock, like the shock it, that you guys are talking about. It explodes. It's it's hard. It it'll <laughs> it heat treats around sixty one, sixty two. You know when when you let it air harden, it's it's pretty hard. S seven is going to be fifty six, mm. fifty seven. It can take a bit of use, but fifty five, fifty six generally what S seven is. But D two is just. I know Jim Poor made some pritchels out of D two, and it didn't last long. <laughs> I don't know what ever happened, but I remember him twenty years ago making making a batch of D two pritchels and. He didn't make it any anymore, <laughs> but I, I think they're probably too hard, for sure. Interesting. Yep. That striking end's got to have a little bit. Goes down a pritchel. Yeah, that striking end's got to be soft, and you're not going to get that with D2. You you can't you can't temper it back enough. It's it just it stays hard. Wow. Yeah. No, that makes something new. That makes day. a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, what else is on the horizon for you then? Um, I'm really looking forward to the Calgary thing. So that's coming up. And next weekend is the Alabama contest, and we're going to go to that. So that's kind of the next two things coming up pretty quick. And, and then it'll be – Do you have any words that, that so. you would like to say for – do you have any words you'd like to say for, like, anybody going and competing at uh, Spruce? that you'd like to say before beforehand? Um, I can't think of anything right offhand, but I just um, I just want to see some good horseshoeing and, you know, want it to be – want everybody to have a fair shake, and that's that's what it's all about. And and I'm going to do my best to make sure the right winner is, is crowned. And, you know, I know Spud thinks the same thing, and we're going to work together and, and – try to make it the fairest contest possible but I know there's going to be a lot of emotion emotions going on and you know a lot of money at stake and there's going to be some upset people but that's one thing I don't like about judging is just you know you got to pick a winner and that, that's just a part of it it's something I've been kind but, of thinking about and pondering about is you didn't make like the specimen shoes for the contest is like how did is that hard to judge a contest when, like, all the specimen shoes are already there and then they're getting picked out of a pool? Like, how do you – like, how hard is that going to be? You know it's what I mean? It's not hard because you're always – whether it's your specimen or someone else's, you're, you're still judging it against the specimen. And okay, it doesn't matter. And, and when, it was, when it was pitchers at Calgary and the convention, you know, they would have drawings – and you judged it to the drawings. So it's, there was no, that, that was the ultimate test is the closest shoe to the drawing or the closest shoe to the specimen wins. You know, and just mm-hmm. the hardest part is knowing the details of a specimen that you didn't make and the hard parts of that specimen. You know, and I'm going to make all the shoes. I haven't made them all. I've made some of them, but I'm going to make all the shoes before I go. That way I know what to look for and, and the hard parts of those shoes you know and it was kind of cool watching the aft make some of those shoes is you know you knew you watching chris madrid make something and he's struggling on something you know that that element's hard on that shoe yeah so it's it's something to look for but but i firmly believe you have to make them in order to judge them properly you know just 
you can't judge a heel cock if you've never made a heel cock, you know, if that makes sense. And so it just, absolutely. You have to know, you have to know what's important and, and, and the hard parts of that element in order to make it fair. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well, uh, Austin, a question that we like to ask our guests is who are, we call it the Mount Rushmore. Who are four people that you look up to or have influenced you through your career or your life that you would uh, consider on your Mount Rushmore? Oh, that's a tough one. First would be my dad, for sure. You know, he's mm-hmm. helped me so much and been supportive. Um, well, there's Mark, obviously. He even just, helped me a lot when I lived down there. Yeah, just just working together with him and just... You know, I wouldn't be where I am today without Mark, you know, just taking me under his wing and really, you know, teaching me a lot. Um, I'd have to put Jim Poor in that category, too. You know, he's he's really helped me, you know, just super unselfish. Just anything you ask for, you call him. As you guys know, he'll just help you just any way he can. Um, yeah. And then... Jim Keith too, you know, Jim Keith's been a hero of mine and he's really helped me. And so well, those four guys, and then there's, there's a lot more, but I, those four come to mind. And yeah, it's always hard one to put four people on the pedestal when there could be, you know, 15 yeah. or 20. Yeah. And that's, that's why I like making tools, you know, Jim Poor and Jim Keith, you know, been my heroes and, you know, and just, I've always watched them making tools and been intrigued by them doing that. And, you know, it's one thing I just tried to implement in my life as well. Just watching those guys work really hard and make some, make some cool stuff, you know? So it's exciting. No, I think it is a really, really cool deal. Austin, because you have, you've, you've done the traditional climb, just like all of them have of that. You went, you won conventions, you've won Calgary you've gone and done really good things and now you've kind of given back to our trade like really well you have a a great line of tools you're coming out with things for the horse you know with your pads and even on top of like man how many people have their name on the side of an amble they created (laughs) that and that's been fun you know (laughs) that's pretty that's pretty cool like pretty damn cool man like and, and john harshbarger would be on my mount rushmore too you know he's just He's the salt of the earth, you know, just really great guy yeah, to deal cool. with. And just he supports our industry so much. And, you know, and, and I really got to know him when we did the anvil thing together. And it just it's been been a great thing. And John's just been really supportive. And he, he supports our organizations and WCB and, you know, AFA and TPFA. And he just he's a great all around guy. And I just. That's actually a him, uh, very good if, trans- if I get a fifth transition guy, I there too. Yeah. That we uh, we that is well, actually you are like a perfect guy for this podcast as well, is because you are involved with these two people quite a bit, and uh, we John at Wellshot is now one of our sponsors for our podcast, and like awesome. John is we like huge thanks to John. Like you're saying, John is so big on supporting back our industry, and it's like. Yeah. It's a cool thing because it's not like John's reaching out for with us to, like he's trying to reach out to a new crowd really. We are the kind of competition crowd a little bit with our podcast 
and John's very well known throughout us. And John's just trying to help us out and help out what we're doing and get the word out of what we're doing. So it's a huge thing. And another one of our new sponsors is the World Championship Blacksmiths. Uh, awesome. The Trinka family has helped us out. And so that is really cool. And like it's two people that you're very involved with too. And so it's a, it's a very cool circle of people that w- have been brought to us in this farrier world. So it's a, yeah, and actually a pretty, pretty cool deal. Yeah, it's so fun to be a part of it and see everyone help one another. And just it's, you don't see that in other trades, and it's so cool to see, for sure. Yeah, it's awesome. One hundred percent. You're one of those people, Austin. You've always been willing to help. I always send you a bunch of annoying messages, and <laughs> you've always been super helpful to me and everybody else. So, man, I know we all appreciate it. And thanks for yeah, sitting I, down I, with us and taking your evening. You talking to us and I, I just i just want to pass along what all the other guys have taught me you know and it's just it becomes your turn to pass on the information and you know and i was i, I still absorb the information but you know just over the years just guys like jim poor and jim keith and mark milster and those guys just teaching me and then i want to pass that information along <laughs> as well and it's just been it's what makes it worthwhile let's put it that way well we appreciate it thank you yeah, you're doing it, man. Thank you, Austin, for hanging out with us, and thanks, everybody, for listening. We appreciate you. Thank All you. Right. See you.